We interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Romina Boccia. She is the Grover M. Herman Fellow in Federal Budgetary Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. She has a master's degree in economics from Georgia Mason University and frequently publishes on spending the debt and social security. Romina, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thanks for having me. Now, we've uh, talked broadly about social security with various guests, including Charles Blahouse. Um, so I don't, what I want to focus on today is the way in which it impacts young people and specifically the millennial generation. But before we get into that, why don't you just give us a quick overview and refresher on what Social Security is and what its aims are? Social Security at the most basic level is an income transfer program from working Americans to eligible beneficiaries. And it has two main parts. Um, the first part, and which is the one that most people recognize when they hear Social Security, is the retirement program. Um, but there's also another program, which is the disability program that pays uh, benefits to insured Americans that are unable to support themselves through work because of a disability. Now, the retirement program, which came first as part of the New Deal, its original purpose was to provide a measure of protection against poverty in old age. So you have this idea here of the basic social safety net. However, the program today is um, universal and um, some for some reason, that is um, in part for political reasons. You uh, involve everybody in the program. You buy political support by doing that. And then it was also sold as an insurance program that was contributory. So some of the ways in which uh, Social Security redistributes income today are counter to its originally stated purposes. To some degree, um, you could argue that it, in fact, transfers income from lower-income Americans who don't tend to live as long as uh, more educated, higher-income Americans who live longer because of the way that the program pays out benefits. The disability program has its own uh, range of issues. It's over time turned into a long-term unemployment and welfare program, and so both programs are in need of reforms, and they're in fiscal trouble as well. Um, yeah, and we'll dive into the fiscal part in more detail later, but can you at least give us a brief indication of the financial health of the program? If you, so Social Security, retirement, and disability, they have two separate trust funds. But when the trustees every year report on the financial status of these trust funds, they tend to um, do it individually and also in, in the combined form. In their combined form, Social Security paid out nearly $71 billion more in benefits to retirees and other beneficiaries than it collected in tax revenue last year. So $71 billion had to come from other sources of revenue, either taxes or since the government is running about a half a trillion dollar deficit now and was last year as well, most likely from borrowing money. And so people, some people will argue that Social Security isn't running a deficit because it can't legally do so. But the reality is that when the Treasury cashes in 
those trust fund bonds that are held in the Social Security Trust Fund, it has to actually convert them to cash, and that involves either borrowing or taxing, or this, this would perhaps be a better approach, reducing spending in other areas to pay those benefits. So to some degree, the trust fund is um, misleading in that way, that it seems like the Social Security Retirement Program, at least, is fiscally solvent for the next 20 years until about 2033. However, it's already running cash flow deficits, and that's, I think, the important thing to recognize, that we're taking one form of debt and converting it into another, intragovernmental debt, which some people would say we owe to ourselves, and turning it into public debt, which we borrow from uh, people in the United States and also from foreigners. Yeah, so we'll come back to all that. Um, let's start, though, with just how it's affecting young people today. So how much are millennial workers paying Social Security taxes right now? The current uh, payroll tax rate that covers the Retirement and Disability Program is 12.4% of earned income, and that's up to $117,000 in annual income. So there is a cap on how much is taxed for Social Security purposes. And the reason that there is a cap is that benefits are somewhat associated with contributions that were made. Uh, when Social Security determines somebody's benefit, they look at the earnings that um, that individual has had over their lifetime, but only those earnings that were subject to Social Security taxes. And the reason for that is so that nobody receives extraordinarily high benefits. For example, somebody who's a millionaire, if we had that link between the taxes that they pay and the benefits they receive, they could receive $150,000 from Social Security annually, and arguably that's not the role of the federal government to uh, provide income of, of, of that size. So that's why the cap is there. So mille millennials... Um, in recent surveys, earn about $42,000 at age 30. Somebody who earns $42,000 pays about $5,200 in Social Security taxes every year. That is a lot of money, especially for somebody thinking about starting a family or maybe thinking about um, doing, getting into their own business, um, buying additional education. But it goes to Social Security and it actually goes to paying benefits for current retirees. So the money doesn't get saved, so it's available for that individual when they retire, but it goes into the Treasury and it goes right out the door to pay benefits for current retirees. Yeah, I think it's really important. Sometimes we hear a number like 12.4% in taxes and it kind of washes over us. But as you pointed out, I mean, that's when we're talking in the neighborhood of $5,000 a year. The example I like to use to make it real to people is, you know, when, when you're 30 years old and you're, you know, working to make a car payment, you have to, in effect, make more than a car payment each month to Social Security before you can do the things like start your family or pay for your own car or pay down your college loans. That's right. And if you look at how, at what point in, the, in their life people start saving on their own for retirement, you, you see people starting to save much more at older ages when they likely have higher incomes and they're closer to retirement where they're 
thinking about it more, and so they start setting aside more money. You especially see that when people hit age 50, they start putting much more money away for their own retirement than they did previously. And to some degree, that's individuals making those smoothing, consumption smoothing decisions over their lifetimes based on what, what is best for them. When you're young, you need that cash more than when you're older. Maybe your kids are out of college or you've got your house paid down. But Social Security doesn't allow you to make those individual decisions about how you want to structure your life and when you want to save and when you want to spend. It just makes you pay the same amount every year. Yeah, I think that's really, really important because uh, we sometimes just think about the cost of Social Security, not about the fact that it's interfering with the kinds of decisions we need to make the most of our life. And, you know, people are different. So I always think about the contrast between myself and my dad. Um, you know, he wants to spend a decade or two playing golf and travel in the world with my mom. And, you know, I, I want to work as long as I can. And so we'd have much different goals in terms of how much to save. We're at different stages of our life. So as you said, uh, he might save relatively more. I might save relatively less now. And yet that is incredibly interfered with by Social Security. And so it makes it a lot harder to achieve the things we want to achieve in our lives. That's right. And if you think about a lot of low-income people, they don't have any federal income tax burden at all. The, the largest federal tax burden they face is the payroll tax. And at those levels of income, um, companies often run into the conflict of whether to hire that additional worker, knowing that whatever they're paying them, you've got to add that 12.4% for Social Security. Um, or use a machine to carry out that job or take your business abroad. And so I think it hurts low-income Americans disproportionately because it makes them also less desirable on the job market. Um, so what can millennials expect to get back from Social Security? And to, can you give it a little context as well by, say, comparing it to what earlier generations have gotten back relative to what they paid? So earlier generations made out like bandits. The first people who received Social Security benefits barely paid anything into the system and just basically got a windfall because it was always set up as a pay-as-you-go system so current workers pay for current retirees. People who uh, were born in um, 1915 got more than $2 for every dollar of taxes they paid into Social Security. This is research from the Urban Institute. Um, people who were born in 1945, just after World War II, they already, they're today, to the extent that they're retired, are receiving less than a dollar in benefits for every dollar of taxes paid. And the return on investment just gets worse. So looking at what millennials can expect to receive, you have a lot of uncertainties there because you, um, there's a shortfall that's looming. In 2033, the trust fund will be exhausted. If Congress doesn't do anything, benefits would be cut by 23% across the board. So will Congress allow that to happen? Um, maybe not. But then what kinds of changes will they put in place? I think what we can say um, with a great amount of certainty is that they will not receive a um, dollar back for every dollar they put in and will receive a lot less because millennials are faced with 
having to finance their own retirement and also making up for the unfunded uh, entitlements that current generations are receiving. So it's, it's, it's this, this problem where you had a lot of workers paying into the system and fewer workers taken out. In the 50s, there were 16 people paying in for every beneficiary of Social Security benefits. Today, we're down to three people paying in. One person takes out, and in 20 years, it will be two people. So with that demographic change, um, you just benefits are not going to be as generous for current and future generations as they, as they were for those who came before them. Yeah, and it's even worse than that because it's not as if the government takes a dollar and then gives me less than a dollar. It's that they took a dollar I could have saved and invested that could have been worth way more than that in the future. And so I'm prevented not just from having you know that given amount of money, but from everything I could have earned by being really smart with it and putting it into the productive economy. That's right. If you, if you start saving um, at age, uh, say, 22, you're just coming out of college, you start saving, you would only need to save about uh, $500 a year, and you could um, accomplish a million dollars by the time you retire. However, if you pay into Social Security, over your lifetime, you can expect to pay um, as the average college graduate, and this is uh, research by Anthony Davis, who did a, uh, an excellent video, I highly recommend, for Lauren Liberty. Um, the average um, college graduate starting to work at age 22 will pay about $850,000 in Social Security taxes over their working life. And um, before adjusting for inflation, they can expect to receive back about $1.2 which is a rate of return of about 1.6%. But inflation is going to erode all of that, and we don't know what inflation will look like given current monetary policy. It could be much worse than the 2% that the Fed is shooting for. Regardless of that, if that person instead invested in, say, a balanced index fund, they could expect to have five times this much, about $6 million at age 65. Arguably, what this tells you is that that person would have to save a lot less to have a comfortable retirement. And uh, if they had to save as much as they are forced to save for Social Security, would be oversaving for their own lifetime. But at least they could pass it on to their heirs, which with Social Security, if you pass away, the money is gone. What do we know about the other effects of Social Security on the economy, whether it affects things like jobs and economic growth? So... The United States uh, is facing a problem of aging now where the population 65 and older is uh, increasing at a much faster rate as the population, uh, as the working age population. Over the next 20 years, the working age population is supposed to increase by 10%, but the population aged 65 and over will increase by almost 80%, and that's just the baby boomers. Uh, moving through that cycle and the fact that generations after them have had fewer children and our generation has uh, has even fewer children than they did. And so with that, you are facing that problem of uh, reduction in the labor force. So fewer people in the labor force as they go off to retire and <laughs> golf or whatever they like to do when they're older. Um, with that in mind, you already have this problem of fewer people working 
and Social Security encourages early retirement. People um, have much longer life expectancies than they've had in the past, but the Social Security eligibility age has adjusted for that. So currently, if you retire today, you could receive your full Social Security benefit by age 66, or you could decide to take it at age 62, receive a lower benefit, but receive a benefit nonetheless. And many people retire in that period between 62 and uh, 66, and they're out of the labor force. And those who are receiving Social Security benefits and who'd like to continue working, the system is so complicated that they don't really know if it's um, if it makes sense for them to do so. There's this earnings test that if you um, earn more than a certain amount, Social Security takes uh, $1 for every $2 that you earn off your benefits. And also you get them at the back end. People don't understand that. So there's a lot of ways that the system encourages people to retire early and also stop working in retirement. And that is um, hurting economic growth. If your labor force is smaller, you can expect to see less growth. Another uh, factor is that Social Security is um, encouraging lower birth rates. There's been um, several research projects to show that since Social Security's inception, um, the birth rate in the United States has fallen. And some studies um, concluded that half of the reduction in fertility rates since the 60s is because of programs like Social Security and Medicare where people to some degree had children because they relied on them to provide for them in retirement. But then the other part is that so much money now goes to pay for these entitlements. Um, if you add in Social Security and Medicare, you're at over 15% of your income going, for these, going towards these entitlements. And raising children is expensive. When so much of your money goes to pay for the benefits of the current retired generation, it makes it harder for you to set aside the money to raise your own children and so people ha are having fewer children for that reason also. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken publicly about, I mean, my wife and I ha have one daughter and we would love to have a second, but one of the things that's caused us to put it off is precisely the fact that it's really expensive. And if we had, you know, 10% more, let alone 15%, I mean, that's definitely a value we pursue. And so, I mean, I think it's important um, oftentimes I'll discuss these issues with other policy think tank analysts and it'll be just raw numbers and percentages and so on. But I think it's really important as you're doing to personalize all these issues and make real what are we giving up when we, uh, engage, when we have programs like this. And you have to really think about is that right and is it worth it? I, I, did, I had one uh, question of clarification. So you mentioned... Um, the fact that earning, in effect, uh, a person receiving Social Security can be taxed on money he earns um, beyond a certain point. Is that just for people who retire early, or does that apply, like, even if you're in your 70s? Um, that goes up. Uh, so there is, you have the early retirement age, and you have the full retirement age, and then you have the, what they call the delayed or late retirement age. But really that's your full retirement age. So once you reach age 70, you're no longer subject to the earnings test. But up until then, um, you are. And so the, the earnings test really doesn't make any sense because once you stop working or once you reach age 70, your benefits are adjusted for how much they were reduced by the earnings test. So 
over the course of your lifetime in the system, you should be receiving um, that money. But when it's when you when you're seeing one dollar subtracted from your benefits for every two dollars that you earn, it's a, it's a really big um, discouragement for people to uh, work at those ages. Um, so we've t you touched on this a little bit, but I want to make it explicit. One of the arguments that you often hear anytime you even suggest reforming Social Security or making changes with the program is the idea that current recipients or people nearing uh, retirement will say, look, I, I paid for this and I deserve something back. And I think this seems wrong in at least two ways. And the first is that, as you pointed out, what people pay for is not their benefits. It's a transfer program. So people nearing retirement today, they weren't paying for their uh, retirement payments. They were paying for their parents and grandparents' generation. And second, as you pointed out also, that current retirees, um, or at least until recent history, received more than they paid in to Social Security taxes. So how should we think about the idea that, well, I paid for my Social Security check? You hear this a lot from people who are already receiving benefits, but then even um, younger people will say, well, I'm paying these taxes now. I would like to get something back for it. And that is um, an understandable sentiment. I think it feels very unjust to people that they're paying for something that they have been sold as that has been sold to them as a contributory system that they would get something at the other end. Um, and then when you find that it's actually unfunded and promises have been made that haven't been paid for, um, then it's, it's, it's upsetting. And you don't like to see your money go down the drain in that way, but really it's just another tax. And I think the better way to look at this program is to think about what do we think is the purpose of public policy when it comes to providing uh, protection against poverty and retirement. Is it to force everyone to save a certain percentage of their money with the promise that in the, when they retire, they can take that same amount from um, the next generation? That's basically what we have with Social Security. Or is it, and I would argue that would make more sense, is to say, look, if we don't like seeing old people in poverty, and we live in an industrialized society, and families family bonds aren't as strong as they used to be, or some people just haven't had the children to take care of them. Let's provide a minimum flat benefit level that makes sure everyone's above the poverty level. And that's it. We can argue over whether that's the proper role of government, who should be doing that, whether that's even the right thing to do. But I think certainly the system we have today is by no means justified. And I think it's really important that retirees who are currently receiving benefits from the system understand that when they look at their children and at their grandchildren, if we don't make changes to their benefits today, it's their children and their grandchildren who have to pay for that. And they're the ones who will inherit a weaker economy and face an even greater tax burden to pay not just for the public debt that the U.S. government has already accrued, but also for the unfunded obligations in Social Security and Medicare, and that is not fair. And I think people can understand that. It's just that they don't understand how the system works, and um, to the extent that they don't, they'd like to get something for what they were forced to put in. I understand that as well.
Yeah, I mean, just to emphasize something you said, um, which is, in effect, there is an injustice involved, but the injustice is not in reducing Social Security payments. The injustice happened when they were forced to pay the taxes into the system. And so that's really the root of it, not the fact that we've reached a point where if we don't make changes, the future for our generation, our children's generation is going to be a lot bleaker. Um, I want to turn to an argument that I think is really starting to bubble up right now, which is that, in effect, here's what, what I, somebody like Elizabeth Warren might say to you. She might say, look, you're scaremongering. These are easy problems to solve with a few minor changes. And indeed, we should really be talking about expanding Social Security right now. Yes, and there actually are proposals in Congress right now to do it. And they especially pop up, interestingly, during election season. So, and I think one of the reasons that these programs are so generous is that the um, retired population is very politically active. They have time to call their members of Congress and they have time to show up at their offices and knock on their door and to go to the voting booth. And um, so they are a very powerful constituency. But that to say that the um, we can just make minor tweaks, if we wanted to continue scheduled benefits as they are today, not cut them at all, we would have to increase payroll taxes immediately um, by 3.3%. So instead of paying 12.4% to Social Security, people would be paying about 16% of their income uh, to Social Security. For a median wage earner, um, that's a lot of money that they're, they're not able to put towards their mortgage, their car payment, their children's education, and that goes not to pay for their own benefits, but again, to make up for the shortfall for current retirees. So that's not an easy thing to do, and it's not fair, and it just makes the program even more unjust and also economically harmful. Then the other solution that you'll hear sometimes is to say, let's just do away with the cap on how much of your earnings are subject to Social Security taxes. So instead of taxing you up to $117,000 in income this year, if regardless of what you earn, if you earn $200,000 or $500,000, let's just tax all of it. Um, you end up with very, very high marginal tax rates for upper income earners, and that discourages them from working. And they do have other sources of income. Some of them do, not all of them do. It's certainly not your average uh, middle-class family in a metropolitan area doesn't. But the people who do have the ability to work less and instead rely on income from um, investments, for example, which are taxed at different levels, um, you see those behavioral changes, and that makes our economy worse off, too. So the changes are not small, and they, are, they would be very harmful to the economy and to the people who would have to pay those taxes. Now, the argument that we should increase Social Security benefits, to the extent that we're talking about the fact that there are people today who are living in poverty despite receiving Social Security benefits, I think we can talk about that and how can we make sure that the program actually fulfills its original purpose of providing protection against poverty and retirement. But to increase benefits across the board for middle-class Americans who would be much better off putting their money into private retirement accounts and reaping the benefits of compound interest and of economic growth, um, 
they are much better off in a system where they can set aside more of their own savings and provide for their own retirement than um, put it in, in the Social Security system, which has very low rates of return and, in fact, negative returns for most people. And we haven't even gone into the wider issue of Medicare, Medicaid, and the other spending and debt that is sure to see our taxes rise. So, I mean, it's one thing to look at 3.3% increase in your payroll tax for Social Security, which, as you pointed out, that is enormous. I mean, that is, I, I can't do the math off the top of my head, but something like a 20 to 30% increase. Um, but on top of what people already pay and will have to pay in the future for the rest of the entitlement state, I mean, it's, it, 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 it's a really I would say baffling, except I think I understand why they advocate it. It's baffling how anybody could propose that without and, and not think of the real devastating consequences to young people. That's right. But then some people would like to see a bigger government that consumes even more of the economy's productive resources. And um, they would like to see a, a U.S. that is much more like a European country. And if that's your vision of um, the good life and what good government looks like, then it makes sense to push for these kinds of proposals. But if, if you do add in the unfunded obligations in Medicare and Medicaid, if we didn't make any benefit changes, everyone's taxes would have to double. You cannot fix this problem on the backs of the wealthy. You would have to raise taxes on everyone. And the way that European countries got around this dilemma is that they just added another tax on top of the income tax, the value added tax. And the value added tax in Germany now, which is where I'm from, is, is 20% of everything you buy goes to the government. It's an additional tax on top of your very high income taxes. And that's the kind of system that you would need to pay for all these benefits. And we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is that what we want our country to look like? Do we want those dismal economic growth levels that the Europeans have? And for what? So we can transfer more money to people that don't even need it? Our proposals are, let's make sure everyone is protected from poverty in old age. You can do that with a minimum flat benefit. To provide that is much, much cheaper than what we're doing today. And then those people who are able to provide more for themselves in retirement because they have higher incomes where they're actually able to save on their own terms and when it suits them at the right time for them in their life, encourage them to save um, on their own. And the good news is that Americans already have a fairly large share of income in retirement that's not from Social Security but from other sources including work and investments. And that's the kind of system we want to encourage that more Americans receive more of their income from alternative sources and not from Social Security. So let's end on this question. This is, uh, I mean, this is not a secret problem that we're talking about. It's widely known in Washington. And indeed, even since I was in high school, I was told, you know, watch out, kids. Social Security is not going to be around for you. Why don't you think young people are more interested in this issue? And what do you think we should do in order to try to get them interested? So to some degree... We have gone past the threshold where um, a deal could have been worked out that would have created a more just um, system. At this point, what we're trying to avert is even more 
even, uh, an even greater tax burden to pay for already scheduled benefits and also, of course, um, greater benefits that don't make sense. Um, but you sort of that idea that you could use the Social Security surplus to set up private retirement accounts and people could reap greater returns from that, that timing has passed because Social Security now runs a deficit. So to the extent that you've reduced current workers' payroll tax burden, you run into a problem of having a cash shortfall to pay currently scheduled benefits. I think the best solution would be for all generations to recognize the size and magnitude of the problem and help resolve it. But that means that you don't grandfather people 55 and older, like many uh, people in Congress are suggesting. I understand why they do this. It's for political reasons, but it's um, unjust for younger generations. So if, if, if we can't politically reduce benefits for those who already receive them, at the very least, we should reduce them um, going forward to make the system more fiscally sustainable and to minimize the, um, the tax burden that will be added on top of the already existing one. Just an example, if we continue with the current program, um, the average uh, millennial born in 1985 will pay about 13.5% of their lifetime income in taxes to Social Security and receive benefits in turn of about 9.6% of their income. So their lifetime net tax to Social Security is 3.8%. So they pay 3.8% more of their lifetime income um, than what they can expect to receive in benefits. Now, if we reform the program by um, increasing the retirement age going forward and adopting a system that protects the benefits of the lowest income workers but reduces them um, for higher income workers through, for example, progressive price indexing, what it does is it, um, it adjusts the wages of lower income workers um, for wages in the economy so that their benefits are more generous than they would be with a price adjustment. And for middle and upper income earners, you use the price adjustment, which is how many European countries do it now because their systems are unsustainable as well. Then you see um, the same person born in 1985 would pay about 10.2% of their income to Social Security and receive benefits of 8.2%. So the net tax that they would be paying into the system is 2%, which is about half of what they are currently um, uh, having to pay if we don't make any changes. So you're sort of trying to reduce the pain and the burden and um, make it less painful and less harmful. That's, that's the strategy that uh, we're unfortunately faced with because politicians have waited too long to reform the system. My guest today has been Romina Bocia. Romina, thanks for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Thanks for having me on. So one thing I think came out of this interview is that Social Security and the way that we talk about it really blends together two very different goals. So the first goal is the idea of helping individuals prepare for their own retirement. And the second goal is a welfare program for the poor to help the poor elderly. As to the first, I think it's very clear, uh, really came through in the interview that people can, and in my view, should make their own financial plans, including how to plan for retirement, how much to spend today, how much to save for tomorrow, where to invest their money, 
All of those are choices that individuals should make, and the vast, vast majority of Americans can and would be able to plan for their lives, including their retirements, if they were left free. Social Security, far from helping us plan our financial affairs and our retirements, doesn't make things better. It makes them far worse. And that is really what the whole discussion stressed. The fact is that far from helping us plan for our lives, Social Security is taking an incredible amount of money away from us. And even if you factor back in how much we can expect to take from earlier generations, we're far worse just in financial terms. Now, as for welfare for the poor, this is a difficult issue, um, certainly more difficult than the previous one to think about clearly. And I've talked about it in many places, including my book. So I just want to highlight the two basic issues, which I don't, I don't have time to prove right here in this wrap-up. So first is that a welfare program for the poor is unnecessary. That is the truly um, people who are suffering through no fault of their own and who we would want to help uh, would receive help in a free society. Indeed, there'd be far fewer people in need of help in a free society, which would be far more prosperous and have far greater opportunity. The second is that what the welfare state does is it does not say help the poor, help poor people that you value, help people that are deserving of it to the extent that you can afford it. What it says is that a person's need, whatever its source, whether it's bad luck or bad immoral choices, that is an entitlement. It trumps your dreams, goals, and priorities. And the example I like to give about the difference between helping those that you value and this idea of needs entitlement is to really put yourself in the position of the person in need. Think about if you are the one who, say, is having trouble paying his rent and retirement. Would you view yourself as entitled to go over to your neighbor and demand income from him? To demand that he help you out? Or would you ask? And would you understand if he said, look, I'd love to, but the fact is that I'm struggling to send my kid to school, to start a new business, whatever. I think that most of us have the view that, no, I wouldn't expect, and I certainly wouldn't demand help from others if it was some if it involved them having to sacrifice for me. But that's what the welfare state does. What the welfare state does is it doesn't help people. It forces us to sacrifice for anyone who's in need, regardless of the consequences for our own lives, our own dreams, our own hopes. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to review us on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.